0: We're, we're just about wrapping up First Peter. We've been walking through the book of First Peter, which is written by a guy, a guy named Peter, to a church that were under a great persecution. We've been in this book for probably three, two, three months last week. Elder Charles gave us the word from First Peter chapter four, and we're picking up from chapter five. If you have your Bibles, let's go to First Peter, chapter five. We're going to go verses one to seven. First Peter. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. By the way, welcoming team, great video, awesome video. I asked them, because, you know, we announce it every week, and, you know, nobody signs up, so we're like, let's make an impact. Let's make a good video, show them what it means, right? When we don't have welcoming, they did a great job. So thank you guys for that video. All right, First Peter 5, we'll go first, seven verses. I'll be reading from English Standard Version. Um, if you don't have your Bibles... The passage is on the screen as well. So I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God oppresses the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So again, we are entering the final chapter of this wonderful gift to our church, the book of 1 Peter, where pu- where Peter moves c- closer to the end of his letter, concluding remarks, and his final chapter is encouragement, centers on two very important aspects. Of Christian faith. One is humility, which we'll talk about today. And second is this idea of being aware of the spiritual warfare that is around us. So that'll be next week. Verses 1 to 7 three things from our text, three ways to separate our text. One, willingness to serve. That's what Peter talks about. Humility in leadership. And how pride and anxiety, they're connected. And we'll talk about that at the end of our sermon. So, so, so just reading along in verse 1, if you just follow with me. Uh, Peter, the author of this letter, connects verse 1 to the, the chapter 4, which our Elder Charles spoke about, right? Using the word, so, therefore, in verse 1. Elder Charles, last week, spoke on this idea of not losing sight of what's really important. Remember that video of the moonwalking bear? How many of you guys saw the moonwalking bear when you first saw the video? None of you guys? All right, one person saw the moonwalking bear? Great. Remember how, that, how easily, right, that, that, if you haven't seen the video, check it out last week. It was a wonderful message. But one of the things that Elder Charles talked about was this idea of we can so easily get distracted by, by what the world tells us to count that we, we miss what's most important, following Jesus. And it's in that context of chapter 4, this is a continuation of Peter's uh, teaching on what it means to have godly leaders. In that very context, knowing that end of all things are near, Peter now addresses the issue of leadership in these local churches. That's why in verse 1 he says, I speak to elders among you. And at the time of the letter, the titles, elders, pastors, overseers... We're all used interchangeably, actually. If you look at the New Testament, New Testament church, there were elders, there were pastors, they're all used in the same way. Now, different traditions, different churches have different titles, but when Peter talks about elders here, he's talking about those that are teaching and leading overseeing the church. And, and in verse one. Uh, he says, I'm also, I know what you're going through because I've, I am also an elder. I'm also someone who's overseeing community. He says, as a fellow elder, I want to speak to you. As a fellow elder, knowing the difficulty of leading a congregation, I want to speak to you. And he also qualifies before he, he talks about what, how we ought to lead. He says, as someone who's witnessed the sufferings of Christ. This is important and interesting that Peter will qualify his teaching with this phrase, the sufferings of Christ. Because if you think about it, he could have said, I've seen the transfigured Jesus, which is a big deal, right? He was only one of the three disciples that were invited to see Jesus transfigured. Or he could have said, I've seen the resurrected Jesus, the risen Jesus. He came to me, which also would have been an amazing qualification, which both would have been true, yet Peter chose to speak of Jesus' suffering. He says, as a fellow elder who's witnessed Jesus' suffering, that's verse 1, which means for Peter, if you think about the sufferings of Jesus, this is probably one of the most, one of the greatest moments of failure for Peter, right? Where was Peter when Jesus was arrested, and he was being questioned and put on trial falsely. Right? That night, Peter stood by that court, court, courtyard, cowardly, right? denying any relationship with Jesus. So why choose his greatest moments of failure and weakness before teaching about leadership in the church? I think Peter is setting the tone. Reminding everyone who aspires to be leaders, any elder in a local community is never to be so proud to think they can never fail or make mistakes. And I think Peter is trying to remind all leaders that God calls people into leadership not because they are wonderful and great. It's through their weakness and brokenness through their stumbling and challenges, that God reveals his glory. That's why I think Peter uses the sufferings of Jesus to qualify what he's about to say regarding the leadership in the church. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So Peter now goes into, after qualifying, he now goes into... This instruction for the leaders of the church. He's a shepherd, the flock of God that is among you. Verse two in the Greek, literally, to shepherd. The word is poimaino. Poimaino, which means to shepherd and to guide. So, contrary to what we think about job of shepherding. So, if you imagine Jesus the shepherd, what's what do we imagine? Some, someone that's very kind, very nice, very kind voice, very comforting contrary to what we think about job of shepherding none of us are shepherds none of us i assume have ever ever done shepherding for the original readers which was the which is in the east eastern eastern mediterranean setting first century eastern mediterranean setting this imagery of shepherd and sheep was not always warm fuzzy and idyllic but but shepherding was a difficult hard job right if you can imagine Running a farm. Some of you guys grew up in a farm. Imagine running a farm. Imagine growing these livestock. They're, that was not an easy job. And sheep uh, were probably not very smart, not very, uh, not, well, not very good at listening. So he demanded hard and difficult toiling work. It was no job for the weak-hearted. And Peter reminds them, being a leader of the church, leading a church, it's not, it's not this idea of warm and fuzzy, idyllic situation. It's going to demand difficult work. And remember, this was the, also the very calling that Jesus gave Peter in John 21. Remember that story? Peter failed. Peter ran from Jesus. Peter denied relationship with Jesus. And Jesus, having been resurrected, he goes and he 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 seeks after peter peter has left jerusalem he's now in galilee where he his home ready to be ready to quit and move on and jesus comes and jesus cooks this amazing breakfast and peter comes and jesus asks peter Simon peter do you love me and peter's like yeah jesus you know i do simon peter do you love me jesus you know I do. Simon Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus turns to Simon Peter at that moment and says, what? If you love me, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Poi my sheep. Same calling. And now Peter, knowing that his days are numbered. Right? Peter's in Rome, writing this letter much older in his age, knowing probably things are not going to end well, he writes this letter knowing that he's going to have to turn to others with the same calling and same reminder. And also notice that's not the flock of God that is under you. That's not what it says, right? It's not under you or assigned to you, but it is the word among you. The flock of God that is among you. I think this is important Which means no elder or pastor is above their congregation. Elder Charles, Elder Evan, myself, we are among the congregation. Sometimes I think as 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 I've done ministry, sometimes as I do ministry and as I lead a church, I think it's hard for people to think we're just part we're also just part of the congregation. Right? But we are, right? Elders and leaders and pastors, we are also part of the congregation. We are not just simply the the CEOs or generals that are leading the group. That means we get tired. That means we get discouraged. That means sometimes I don't want to pray. Sometimes I don't want to read the Bible and I need encouragement, right? Our elders need your encouragement, right? In that way. And, and Peter says, you're among the congregation, not above the congregation. So what does that look like now in action, now that Peter has set the foundation about the leadership of the church, he now goes into verse 2 and he says, this is how you ought to lead. And first thing he says is do it willingly. Everyone say willingly. Do it willingly, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, but do it willingly and eagerly. He repeats this idea of doing it not out of obligation or responsibility, but a genuine joy of, of, of the work. You see, a person can have all the gifts and talents and all the ability to be able to teach and govern, but if they're not willing, they're not qualified. According to Barna Group, a, a reputable, uh, they do a lot of research in the church in the U.S. There was a research done in 2022, uh, March, so about a year and a half ago, and, and they did research on health of pastors, mental, physical, like full-time pastors. And the report shows that in recent, between, two thousand, they, they did the same study, 2015 and 2022, reporting their excellence in these areas. I don't know if you could read this, right? Spiritual, spiritual well-being for pastors, physical well-being, mental, emotional health, overall quality of life, respect they felt from their congregation level of true friends, right? If, if you look at it, just in, what is that seven years, right? This, this, so the spiritual well-being, pastors in U.S. and America, but probably in Korea as well, well-being dropped from 30, they felt 37% of them felt like they were spiritually well, which is actually scary, right? The pastors, right? 30, they felt 37%, right? And in 2022, only 14% of the pastors in the U.S. felt they were spiritually well. Physical well-being, right, dropped from 24%. Only a quarter of the pastors felt physically well in 2015. 2022, what is that? 9%, right? We got to get in shape. 9%. We don't feel well physically, 9%. Mental emotional health from 39% dipped to 11%. Overall quality of life dipped from 42% to 18%. Level of respect they felt from the congregation tank from 22%. Only 22% felt like they were respected in 2015. Now it's 10%. Level of true friends. Pastors are lonely people. Right? I, got like, I, got, I got a few pastors friends to be really honest with. Dropped from 34% now to 17%. And, and, and if you factor all these things in, uh, at the end of the study, they said 42% of the pastors last year considered quitting their work. So this is post-COVID. Many many pastors have quit their ministry during COVID, uh, right, immediately after COVID. This is post-COVID in America because COVID happened earlier. People that, people that have stayed, among the people that have stayed, 42% have considered quitting their full-time ministry. And, and, and I think that's actually pretty accurate because it, when I think about friends that I've studied with, friends that I went to seminary with, I would say two out of ten have remained in ministry last, what, 12, 13 years. Far less people are going into pastoral ministry. Seminaries are now having to sell their buildings. They can't, they can't pay bills. Many of these prominent seminaries are selling their buildings because there aren't that many people going into ministry. I mean, why would you look at look at this? Like, 2015, maybe 2022, forget about it, right? Like this, is how many pastors felt. And Peter says we need to be willing, we need to be eager. Well, well, friends, I think we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for not only our elders but also pastors. But not only just us, but pastors. In this city, pastors that you know, pastors that have pastored you when you're youth, when you're in college, when you're young adults, pray for eagerness, pray for willingness that God got to restore joy, right? Some of you guys are thinking, don't you love what you do? I do. I do love what I do, but I only love probably like 25% of what I do, 75%. It's a lot of things. I don't know what the heck I'm doing, right? There's so, so many different things, especially as a church planter, planting a church. Seminary did not prepare me to plant a church, to, to, to the balance sheet, to be able to budget, to be able to hire. Seminary taught me how to preach a sermon, but a lot of these things are, are, are totally new. So I, I think uh, it's important that, again, we pray for our leaders, not just our church, but churches that you know, that God will give them eagerness and willingness And if you think about the health, health of the churches, the state of where we are in Korea, and the health of how pastors feel, I think there's a direct correlation, actually, right? So I think we definitely need to pray for for me. Pray for me, guys. Pray for our elders, right? Sometimes I feel like you guys pray for me. Sometimes I don't know. Can I be honest? Sometimes I think you guys are too busy with your lives, so would you pray for me? Would you pray for our elders that we are we do this out of joy, out of willingness? Second, verse three, so we need to be willing. That's one one thing. Second thing is not as domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. J.R. Woodward recently wrote a very helpful book titled the scandal of leadership. There were so many scandals within the last 10 years among these prominent evangelical leaders. This guy J.R. Woodward wrote this book about w- what's the reason that so many of these prominent evangelical leaders have fallen, especially in this area of domineering leadership. Many of my mentors that I, 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 that, that I grew under, many of the people that I listened to, they're no longer in ministry, right? And he says in his his book, leaders who thoughtlessly imitate power structures found in the secular world are prone to adopting patterns of domination in the church. When we carelessly bring in the secular ideas of leadership, how we lead companies or how we lead military structures, how we lead these things, there's a real danger of becoming domineering and oppressive. But he also goes on to say it is common to assume Such tendency only affects others in different circumstances. However, he says after doing his research, each of us, to some extent, we are just as vulnerable to this flaw. If we reflect on our own leadership, maybe not church, but in your company. We have some people that lead companies here, that lead classrooms here. If we think about, reflect on our own leadership, we can likely recall incidences when we have misused power whether it be for personal gain, through intimidation or defensiveness. Parenting, I think a lot of parenting, is, it's this, right? We demand things from our children and we don't want them making any excuses. I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I fail as a parent, like every week, demanding my daughters, go to sleep, okay? And I'm just, they're just terrified. He also points out in the book we often blame these leaders for their failure. Yet today, if you think about how the state of Christianity in, 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 our, in our culture, today churches have become obsessed with celebrities. And how many, how, many, uh, how many put pastors on pedestals? When we become infatuated with building crowds, right? We, we, we think about what is a healthy church, what is a successful church. We, thi- we think about building being fooled. When we become infatuated with building crowds, we become obsessed by our image instead of the image in God. An infatuation with crowds have formed pastors who look and act like rock stars, creating this unhealthy celebrity culture within the church, which then becomes a breeding ground for domineering leadership. So what what Woodward is saying is, hey, we love charismatic personalities. We love someone who can actually gather a crowd. We love someone who can actually get things done. And now to turn around and say, why are you so domineering? We're being hypocritical as a church. So he, so his encouragement is for us to rethink about what does it mean? What kind of leadership do we value in the church? And I confess to you, we're, we're right now looking for an associate pastor as we speak. Because Pastor John has left. And I tell you, first thing I look at is like resume. I look at their talent. I listen to their sermon. How charismatic they are, how well spoken. And I realized it's in me. That's what I want. Instead of someone with godly character, someone who's actually faithful and consistent, who is who's got meekness of Christ. So I think it's in the church. We desire these things. And so we can't just say, well, well, this pastor and that pastor, that, they're the problem. No. This is this is the state of Christianity. That we are at. And we need to be able to reflect on the way. What kind of leaders do we follow? What kind of leaders do we look to as a church? And he's simply saying the problem goes far deeper than simply power hungry leaders. Eugene Peterson, an amazing author, the guy who actually translated the message version of the Bible. Anyone love the message version? I love the message version. He's the guy who translated the message version of the Bible. In his book, he wrote a book called The Pastor, and I, I'll tell you, first time I read this book, I was so bored, right? I was so used to reading, like, these books written by these mega church pastors, how to grow the church, how to grow your congregation, all these. And I, I picked up this book called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson, and I'm reading this thing, right? I'm, like, halfway through the book, I'm like, Pastor Eugene, what's your point, it's so boring. He's telling stories of like serving as a pastor in this small town as when he was like pastoring and all these little stories of like kids in his church. And I'm just like, get to the point. Teach me how to, how to grow my congregation. But his book is all about what does it mean to be truly pastor. And he says in his book, The Pastor, and he speaks about this devastating impact of domineering leadership. And he says, a domineering pastor distorts the image of God in which we are created and, and we are redeemed and, 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 and God that is in our lives. Right? He says, this is, this is the reason why we really need to be careful as a domineering leaders, because we're distorting the image of God that is in us. Right? Leadership by domination contradicts the truth of God's presence in creation and in redemption and in our lives. See, throughout the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God who will not force us to love him back. We see God who is ever so patient. God who is ever, ever so kind and never demanding of our love. A God who will wait for us. God who is patient with us. And that's who we serve as pastors and what Eugene Peterson, Peterson says there's so many, too many pastors that 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 are distorting this idea of who God is because of they lead. In fact, if you think about, if you if you read through the New Testament, all the letters Paul and Peter and everyone that's written, Book of Hebrews written about church leadership, the New Testament never refers to an elder in a singular form. Which means, although a church may be led, have a lead pastor or a senior pastor like ours, ch- there should be a group of elders. Every time New Testament text talks about elders, it's always in plural form. Right? Because we need God-fearing, wise group of elders that are leading the community together. Um, and, and at King's Cross, I'm thankful. I remember when we first planted and we didn't have elders. But I'm really thankful now that we have godly elders that, that are humble, that are wise, that, that could preach scripture, that could serve. So one of the things we said when we did elder training was, hey, we're not, we're, this is not a board meeting. We're not just looking at our finances and making decisions about church. We're all pastors. I, I, I work as a pastor in this church, but you are also, even though you don't work for our church, you are also pastor, right, non-staff pastors, and basically, that's what we said. Qualification of elder in our church, you've got to be able to not only govern, but be able to teach, be able to preach. Last week, Elder Charles did a wonderful job of teaching. We'll have different elders teach throughout the year, not just me, because, again, church should be led by a group of elders. You guys are like, this is this a membership class? Sort of. It's 1 it's Peter 5. I'm just teaching scripture. All right, guys? Relax. I, I'll get to the point. All right? But here's the perhaps the most important reminder for anyone uh, leading a church. And this is probably something that, that, that for me was the most important thing in verse 4. Peter says, no elder or pastor are the head of the church. Because there is another person who is the head of the church. There is a chief shepherd we serve, right, that, that we serve. Um, and and we other pastors other elders we serve as stewards of god's flock in fact the scripture reminds us again and again all those serving in leadership will have to give an account when all is said and done at at the end of my life end of elder charles's life elder evan's life we're going to have to give account to our congregation god would say what did you do with the position that i gave you and we're going to have to give account And I think Peter says, this is why we need to be humble, because we're not the owners. We're not the main lead. We have a chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's the one. We're all just part of his team. We're assisting him, but he is our true pastor, true elder. Verse 5. Now, Peter addresses the congregation. Having talked to all the leaders and saying, This is who you ought to be, lead in this way, he now turns to the congregation. And he simply says, Those who are younger, clothe yourselves in humility and learn to submit under the leadership that God has established. Simply says, Learn to submit. There's been mutual submission between you and the leaders. Friends, just as leaders are tempted to bring secular leadership principles into the church. We've seen that, right? We've seen the devastating impact of that. It is just as tempting to approach church as a form of democracy. I realized when we planted a church and we had a bunch of younger people in our congregation, when we didn't have elders and we were building church structure and doing membership, the default mode, everybody assumed that church should be some form of a democracy, that everyone should have a voice and everyone should be able to get a vote. But if you look at the scripture, biblical church is not a democracy, actually. But it is not a dictatorship either. Biblical church is simply God choosing broken people like myself or elders to be able to lead and for the congregation to be able to follow and submit. And, and Peter always talks about this this. Choosing to submit, this idea, I think it was chapter 3, chapter 4. Peter talks about this idea of, hey, all of you have been freed. All of you have this freedom in Christ. Use your freedom not to do evil, but to what? But to serve, right? Every one of you guys, have. no one has forced you to submit to our leadership, but it is a choice that you've been given. And we're asking you to choose with the freedom that Christ has given you to submit um, and only truly free person can choose to be led. Amen? Only truly free person can be choose to be led. Here's a third and final observation, verses 5 to 7, and this is where uh, Peter brings in this idea of pride and anxiety, and I think they should be read together as one idea. Verse 5, for God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on Him. Verse 6 and 7, so when I first read this text, I thought verses 6 and 7 were two different ideas, right? Commit yourself under the mighty hand of God, and bring your anxiety to God. I felt like those are two different ideas, but I realized... They are actually same. they are connected, deeply connected. And I think what Peter is saying is is this. A major part of growing humility for you and I is to have this willingness to bring, to cast our, our anxieties onto Jesus. The major part of growing in humility for you and I is our willingness to bring our anxieties to Jesus. Whereas, so so humility will cause you and I to go draw us near to God, whereas pride does the opposite. Remember Genesis 3, the, the, the famous account of Adam and Eve and their fall, taking the fruit that God told them not to take. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did after taking the fruit? What did they do? They hid and ran from God. Why did they run? Why did they hide? Yes, they realized they were naked for the first time, but more importantly, they became proud. Why did they take the fruit? What was the reason for them taking the fruit? Serpent had told them, if you take the fruit, you can be like God. You can be equal to God. You can be just as great as God. You can actually live your own life, create your own garden, and live for your own desires. It's pride. And the pride that was in the heart of Adam and Eve was the very thing that separated them from God. And if you think about anxiety, many of us struggle with anxiety. Uh, Last 10 years, I've noticed in my meetup with our people in our church and other people, I realized so many more people are struggling with anxiety. I don't know if we, because we, didn't have the language languages for it when we were growing up. It was anxiety it was you're just nervous, right? But now we have the, the language and and ideas around anxiety. But so many of us struggle with anxiety. Um, maybe it's pace of life. So is a very busy city. I feel like I'm always catching up. I'm like July. It's July 16th. I feel like it was like May. When did where, where did June go? Uh, perhaps increase in connectivity. Uh, we're constantly connected to our internet, the news, exposure to social media, all these perfect life, curated life that we see on our friends' pages or celebrities, or the pressure to succeed or to look the best, to feel the best, to perform at the highest level. Like living in Korea, you know, like first like two, three years, I just wore whatever to the grocery store. I just wore put on hoodies, But you know what I do now? I at least put on like a decent shirt to go to grocery store because I realized just living in this city, there is this pressure. Like like I have this pressure to just be be more presentable. I, I didn't think about this like growing up in the States. There was, you know, you just wear whatever. When I went to America last year, people wore whatever. I was like, people really don't care here, right? They just wear whatever they want. But in Korea... There is this intense pressure because everybody's dressing up. Everyone looks so like so nice, and I, I I realize oh man, there's this pressure. And I and you know I don't know fashion. I ask my wife every Sunday like do I wear this? She's like no. Do I wear this? She's like yeah, you can wear that. That's acceptable, right? Um, two outfit changes just today, right? Because I I don't get what's acceptable. Um, and I look like this, so yeah. And all these things contribute to anxiety that we struggle with. I think, and other things like parenting, we are worried about the future, we don't know, we feel, we feel you know, we don't know what's going to happen and things like that. Uh, but the real reason why I think we often become anxious, when I think about my own struggle with anxiety, is because we so often forget that we worship God who is utterly sovereign. Let me repeat myself. The real reason so often become anxious, at least for me, is because I forget that I am not the author of my own life, that I have someone else who is in charge of my life. I forget that fact. And when we ignore that reality, when we ignore that reality and take matters into our own hands, our our challenges at home, our challenges at marriage, our challenges at work, our different problems that we face throughout our week, when we forget that God is actually sovereign, that God is actually in charge and and he has our lives in his hands, we forget that reality, I become extremely anxious when I think about my future, when I think about my kids, when I think about what's next. Because to be human is to want control. Everybody in this room, you could be the most relaxed person, Yet we all love this idea of control. We all want stability, control. We all want the ability to shape outcome according to what we think is the good life, whatever that is. Whether that's relationships in our lives, places, marriages, children, future. Yet friends, I think what Peter is saying is humility begins when we are able to acknowledge Jesus for who he is when you and I can choose to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God verse 7 verse 6 anxiety our struggle with anxiety there's a remedy for anxiety Is again is to go back to saying who owns my life who's in charge here Because anxiety, at least for me, kicks in when I feel like I've lost control of the situation. Every time, whether it's a small or big major thing in my life, every time I feel like I've lost control, I'm losing control of the situation, I become anxious. But the the scripture reminds us over and over again, it's okay not to be in control because we serve someone who's actually in control. The chief shepherd that Peter talks about in our passage the good shepherd for friends the lord is our shepherd you know this passage we shall not be want it is he who makes us lie down in green pastures it is he who leads us besides the quiet waters it is he who restores our souls not us and it is he who leads us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because we're strong? Because we're confident? No, because He is with us. In fact, He wasn't simply in the valley of the shadow of death. The gospel reminds us He entered the valley of shadow of death for you, for me, for your sin, for my sin, for your failures and my failures. And in that shadow of death, Jesus made a full payment with his own life, appeasing the holy wrath of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we are what? New? Two people, creation, creation. Thank you, Elder Charles. New creation. And therefore, as new creation, we do not need to be anxious. Some of you guys are very peaceful, already asleep. Got it. That's great. (laughs) rest of us, we may be anxious, but don't be anxious. I had to put that in for some of you guys, all right? Keep you guys on your toes. But we do not need to remain anxious because we can be confident that God's goodness And mercy. Remember how Psalm 23 ends, God's goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, not because we're good, we're holy, we follow the rules, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's the message of 1 Peter chapter 5. Sorry, first part was like a little membership. Now we get to the point of the gospel. That's what I think Peter is trying to encourage us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of how you see the church. Lord, we thank you for uh, just teaching us, King's Cross, what it means to be a church that is after your heart. We pray for all the pastors and elders in our community uh, to continue to recognize that we are mere stewards of your people that we, ha- we have a chief shepherd that is leading us, that is guiding us. Uh, Father, we pray for anyone that is struggling with anxiety in this season. Uh, we pray in our humility, we can lay down our, 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 our worries and fears uh, to you, Lord. Some of us are struggling uh, financially. Some of us are struggling in our marriage. Some of us are struggling uh, with the unknown things of the future, perhaps sickness. Whatever that is making us anxious, Lord, would you remind us, Holy Spirit, at this moment, that we're not in charge, and that's okay, because we have a Father in heaven who is always in charge. We thank you for that reminder. Just let me pray. Amen.